Hello, it's Nick Brown, Editor-in-Chief of ADC, together with Rachel Edbeko, Senior Editor. And we're here to talk about the papers, amongst other things, appearing in the May issue. So we've got some very interesting papers we need to look at. In the light of recent events, um, I'd like to hand over to Rachel for um, a thought-provoking introductory discussion. Hello, my name is Rachel Agbeko, as Nick said, Senior Editor in Archives. Uh, And we will be discussing several of the papers in this edition of Archives. But first, because of the state of violence in the world today, at a, at a global level, it's probably appropriate to start with thinking of the children and their families in many countries that are experiencing armed conflict. And at the time of this recording, the Ukraine features heavily in media and conversations. So James Elder, a UNICEF spokesperson at a recent press briefing said that more than one and a half million children had fled the Ukraine and many children have died or been wounded. Children are not going to school, may be separated from their families and are at risk of exploitation. And the focus has understandably been on this particular armed conflict. The response to help these children and families in need has on the whole been to acknowledge their suffering and need and to offer help in many ways. So the outpouring of support reflects energy, commitment, solidarity and compassion. And these same attributes could help children in similar extraordinary grim situations, such as in Yemen, Afghanistan, Syria, South Sudan, Myanmar, Nigeria, the Central African Republic, Iraq, the Democratic Republic of Congo, Venezuela, Ethiopia, Gaza, and sadly many more places in the world. Now, given that you're listening to this podcast, you're interested in child well-being. So pause, give some thought to which contributions you are able to make, then take action. We will now go back to this edition of Archives. And Nick, I wonder whether the papers you chose have a unifying theme of growth. Well, that's an interesting question. I think the answer has to be yes. It's growth in the the broadest sense, I guess. But nonetheless, there is, yeah, there is a clear link there. So I want to um, start by talking about this month's Voices paper, which is not only thought-provoking, but but genuinely moving as well. So in short, two paediatricians from the US, Vincent Smith and Kenneth Jones, um, and a birth mother to a child with fetal alcohol syndrome, FASD, give voice to a taboo, inverted commas, subject and pointers as to how to have a conversation when a diagnosis of FAS is contemplated or even confirmed. And in a, in a, in a moving, very, very personal piece, rich with um, quotes and poignancy, um, the authors discuss how one uh, ap- approaches this, 
sort of issue. Now, the fact that we have uh, whole exome sequencing now, you know, in order to um, exclude other causes which are non-fetal um, alcohol exposure related is perhaps of some help, but it hasn't really taken away the need for this uh, initial conversation and for giving the mothers the help they truly deserve. So most most societies will take a, a dim view on of mothers who drink during pregnancy, um, uh, and and it, there needs to be a very um, thoughtful conversation about that. Uh, and and it may be that mothers don't necessarily have appreciated uh, that there might be an issue, let alone that there might be a, a relationship with how their child's behaving or developing and growing um, and their alcohol intake during pregnancy. So there was one one quote um, uh, that was given in the paper uh, that particularly resonated uh, with me. And so this, this, this mum says, her first paediatrician used to tell me there's something not quite right about her, but I just can't put my finger on it. That used to bother me so much because to me, she was simply perfect. And that just shows that um, you know, the, the, the vision of the healthcare provider uh, and mum could be uh, totally far apart. So that's that bridge first to, to cross um, uh, uh, and then the next one. And, and the authors do a brilliant job at giving very practical pointers as to how to do that without being judgmental. The next paper is slightly different. It's about growth in the very literal sense by Professor Charlotte Wright from Glasgow and Professor Tim Cole from London and their team. And what they've done is assessed what an optimal uh, time interval might be for weight and length measurements in infants. When one measures anything, there is a signal-to-noise noise ratio, and in the sense of growth, uh, one might be um, uh, pointed towards concern where that may not necessarily be the case because you've picked up noise rather than signal. Uh, nearly 6,000 infants up to a year old um, had their data in three databases uh, that were routinely corrected uh, and they were analysed in a slightly different way. So uh, there were two databases from the north of England and one from Finland, as well as a separate data set on measurements on 20 babies to assess more the actual standard deviation between measurements, so they were separately done. Yes, well, I suppose you could call this a bit of a myth-busting paper. So a lot of what we do in terms of routine screening in terms of routine practice overall, I think it's fair to say, is tradition-based. I would say that growth monitoring in young children is an area in which tradition is quite a potent factor. And what uh, Tim Cole and Charlotte Wright have very neatly and convincingly done is show that um, the traditional frequency of infant measurement is not only not necessary 
up with uh, false positive alarms raised from minor deviations, which are probably simply physiological, um, that more babies are referred for investigation, are brought back for more frequent measurements, when there was essentially no aberration at all in the first place. And I think this paper is ex extremely useful. would certainly uh, help folk were to adopt this this notion uh, that uh, here potentially less is more. If we now pivot slightly again and go from actual growth to a more growing interest in two areas that feature uh, in this edition. So one is a is a growing interest in patient person-centered medication practice. And the other uh, is an interest in getting appropriate way of administering medications to patients of a younger age group. The two areas that uh, have an increase in growth uh, and where we're probably at infancy in uh, and trying to get that right. We focus on two papers in this area, but so in terms of uh, medication, this, this, this edition features about five papers on, uh, on medication. We just, just took these, uh, these two. So medication being obviously one area uh, that pediatricians um, have an interest uh, in. The first paper we are discussing here is about actually only newly prioritised unmet need of age-appropriate formulations uh, for children. And the authors come from Nigeria and the UK uh, because it's all well and good to concentrate on uh, appropriate dosing for children, but ultimately the child will need to actually swallow the compound. Yes, I mean, this is an interesting area which I, I followed for a few years. And the, quest, the question asked is essentially a logistical one. Somehow the medicine, um, which has been deemed of sufficient status to appear on the emergency medicines list, um, which is now quite extensive, um, has to get inside a child's body somehow or another. And of course in the past the um, solution, no pun intended, has been to give a liquid form of the, the medicine um, on, the, on the assumption that young children find tablets difficult to swallow. And of course, it, they don't find it as easy as adults. Um, but that assumption has been challenged for a, num a number of reasons, as much as anything, because it appears that given the right size of tablet, um, children are perfectly capable from the age of two or three upwards of, of swallowing mini, mini pills at least. Um, and also because of the issues of um, bioavailability of the suspension. So they're much more vulnerable to, for example, um, damage from heat during transport or storage um, contamination and so on and so on. So I um, admire any attempts to improve the delivery 
of these drugs um, and palatability and swallowability, if I'm allowed to use that slightly clunky word. So in, in 2008, WHO, so this goes back some time, proposed that medicines for children should be uh, as flexible, solid, oral dosage, FSOD forms, such as the dispersible tablets and their formulations that can be given to patients in more than one manner, in other words, may be dispersed in liquids such as water or breast milk, or taken orally as a whole. And FSODs are considered suitable for young children, um, and including those in low and middle income countries, both from a technical, so manufacturing stability and cost point of view, and clinical ease of swallowing perspective, as well as dosing. So this proposal to produce medicines for young children as FSODs instead of liquids represents a, a real shift in um, what's generally felt to be a very positive direction. So the authors evaluated age appropriateness of enteral formulations by as assessing the swallowability of formulation across all age groups and dose adaptability and then compare it with the results from a few years earlier. They've compared 2019 with 2011. In 2011, there were about 1,700 separate evaluations, and in the uh, essential medicines list for children in 2019, just over 2,000. So some good news. I'll leave you to read the, the details in the paper. But there were improvements, albeit small ones, um, in, in terms of the proportions of medications that were given in FSOD form between those years. It's heading in those direct, in, in, in the appropriate directions. Um, there were particular changes in commonly used anti-infective agents, so for example for HIV and tuberculosis, with seven and eight new FSODs respectively in the 2019 version compared to the 2011 one. What also struck me is it's interesting that one of the assumptions is that children are unable to swallow tablets. And we, we've published before on this, and we know that this is not necessarily the case. There's some recent work in ADC by Emma Lim and Vincent C, which showed in their Kids Med project, published in, uh, in 2019, and with Appropriate training, children as young as five years, I've, I've read three in, in other papers, were able to do so. One could argue this is a workaround and that, that, that in process and that the formulation should be made more age appropriate at source. Staying within the um, pharma, clinical pharmacology domain, um, we have another interesting paper in the context of asthma medication. So this paper springs out to me uh, because uh, of the term uh, pharmacogenomics uh, and one might um, think about pharmacogenomics in, uh, in the sense of the technical um, uh, capacity so there's more than 50 papers now that have addressed uh, one way or another pharmacogenomics genetics uh, in the context of asthma, so there's a growing um, body of evidence that there is a signal there. But this paper doesn't address that issue. This paper addresses what children and young people 
what their parents and what healthcare providers might think about using the genetic information to inform a personalised asthma plan. And it's somehow maybe extraordinary that we've only started to think about that aspect of um, growth in understanding what makes for good asthma treatment and what might make it better. So the the authors, Daniel Hawcutt and team from Liverpool in England, sought um, views of about uh, 60 people uh, across the area in age, so children and young people, parents and healthcare providers, as well as position uh, to uh, the asthma treatment that was um, being given. So position as in people who are, have the asthma or see their children having asthma and caring for children and young people with asthma. So different perspectives to uh, the uh, the disease. And then we see very different perspectives also um, as to how people view the use of genetics, genomics, uh, in uh, applying that to an asthma plan, both in the practicalities thereof, but privacy, and it's interesting uh, to, uh, to note that, on the whole, people were positive, but there were nuances, and I think we should heed those uh, and not make assumptions that it's all good. So go read the paper, because I think it's thought-provoking in, um, in challenging your assumptions about what is acceptable and what's not. Yes, I agree, and th- this is going to be very much a a template for the future. This is clearly going to come in in all sorts of areas that treatment will be more personalised depending on genotypes. I think we need to establish fairly on, fairly early on, that um, this is actually acceptable to those children on whom we're going to run these tests. Indeed. And as with everything in genetics or genomics, questions that might come up may not necessarily be related to the to the disease, but real issues of data security, something about paternity. Uh, and, and I think we need to be very clear in our minds when, when we start to uh, roll out something more broadly, what the unintended consequences might be. Absolutely. Well, we could carry on talking pretty much all day on the rest of the papers, but I think we'll we'll leave it at that for now. We really, really hope you've enjoyed the discussion. We really hope you enjoy the other articles in the journal and anything else that's current that's appearing on the site, adc.bmj.com. Thanks very much for listening today. We'll be in touch soon. See you next month. Bye for now. <laughs>